the NeuroFeed podcast. How is clinical neurofeedback transforming lives? We talk with therapists, researchers, and home users. From the intersection of neuroscience and therapy, these interviews tell stories of discovery, empowerment, and learning to thrive. Our guests today are Anna Halberg and Maude Nilsson. They're both licensed as psych- psychologists and psychotherapists and are co-founders of Neurofeedback East Stockholm in Stockholm, Sweden. Anna Halberg worked as a neuropsychologist at, at a children's psychiatric clinic and integrates treatment with neurofeedback. In addition to private practice, she leads the neurofeedback department at a clinic for adults who are sexually abused as children. Maude Nilsson worked in both inpatient and outpatient psychiatric clinics. She worked also as a preschool and elementary school psychologist. She integrates EMDR and neurofeedback. In addition to private practice, she supervises EMDR and neurofeedback at outpatient clinics for the County Council in Stockholm. I can say that for me, it was, I mean, I, I was really hesitant to start with neurofeedback. Uh, Maud started before me and said, you should get this. And I was, no, no, no. Wires on patient's head and the machine and the computer, because I didn't have a computer in my office. I mean, I didn't want to have any machines there. It was psychotherapy. <laughs> uh, so... To me, it was more like, okay, give me something to read. And uh, Maud um, gave me a lot of books. Yeah, but Seabra, uh, yeah, it was both from the Signet people, but also Seabra's book, I think. Yes. Yeah. So I spent more, I think, than a year reading, you know, to figure out what is this. And... And since the, this is really me, <laughs> uh, since uh, the system in Europe now, or uh, not at all, but anyway, it was neurofeedback according to Otmer and um, Siegfried Otmer. But then I read uh, the Symphony in the Brain and, and Siebert's book, and then it was like, wow, yes. Um, and the funny thing is that a lot of people knew about Bessel van der Kolk, and I didn't. I found out about him through Seabren's book. This is the other way around what people in Sweden now, when his book is translated, they find out about neurofeedback. Yeah, so I have the other way around than you, Leanne. <laughs> I don't know about you, Maud. Yeah, I, since I've been working Many, many years with severely traumatized patients in a hospital. Uh, I was frustrated because they, um, they had a very hard time to mentalize and to, uh, not to, to uh, constantly uh, don't keep in the window of tolerance. And uh, so it was very hard to do what we call uh, psychotherapy in in a sense over like a process uh, because the the arousal level was constantly so high 
and uh, uh, and they dis dissociated a lot. Uh, so uh, so um, yeah, I was during the years very frustrated, and when I found Siva's book, I thought that this was something that was perhaps useful. I didn't know if uh, um, my my um, the where I worked if they would accept neurofever because it is not it's not something it's not a treatment in the sense that it's allowed in the Swedish psychiatric wards. Uh, you can just call it training, but you can't call it treatment. So so this is it, it still is. So when I started, I I trained with my boss because she was uh, she had the burnout, and she was very happy uh, to to notice the difference. Uh, she could start working much earlier than her doctor said, and then she allowed me to 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 trace start to train some of the patients, and th they were severely severely traumatized, and there was a bit of a um, a hardship to to uh, um, tell them what we are going to do, and because they were afraid, some of them had uh, had heard about ECT, you know the yeah, and so yeah, uh, but I have always got good results, uh, and um, many of the patients uh, have thanked me afterwards when we ended the training. And with psychotherapy because it was then possible to um, to uh, really do a, a, a trauma work um, afterwards. Sometimes at the same time, you know, you you train uh, as, uh, some minutes and then you had psychotherapy. But um, it's still something that patients know about because they hear from other patients what has happened to them. So it's not so that it's it's colleagues who are, who know so much about it. Anna and I are trying to tell them our results and, and talk warmly about neurofeedback as much as we can. And we have also tried during the years to those who had trained and learned neurofeedback. They had uh, trained and learned it the Otmer with Otmer method, Signet. Uh, so there is a couple who who now has um, uh, started to use Ego, the company in the last years. Yeah. Uh, especially those who uh, ask us about the trauma treatment and uh, neurofeedback. Right, because a lot of people. I mean, there are hundreds of people who have had the courses in Sweden. We're a small country, so uh, with the Signet, but it's not mainly for ADHD. Yes, and ADD. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but not uh, with severely traumatized patients, or with with patients that really would benefit from this kind of training and treatment. That's why we choose eager. Yes. 
because it's it's so it's a different yeah it's a good yeah mm -hmm. do you have any questions leanne and just i did i love to hear other people's stories about what brought you to the work and and how it's changed your practice it's really amazing um you know, especially since for, for Anna and Maud, you guys were doing psychotherapy for a long time. Yes. Yeah. Many, many years. Yeah. So, um, uh, what about, oh, I forgot. But no, but I think the thing you said about it's the, it's the people. Uh, yeah. I was thinking about writing a book when I started to learn that uh, neurofeedback to the people, you know, <laughs> opium to the people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's really the people who, who uh, ask about neurofeedback. Yes. And the Facebook forums and, you know, they, they tell each other. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Uh, and that is a, a really hard for, for me in a way, I think for you too, about, to to when they mail us or call us and want to come for training, but they don't have the money. Yeah, it's so expensive. Yeah. So that this is really really a problem. We should provide the patients what they need, not what we think is fun. I want to paint or something, but that's not going to help. Uh, so, yeah, but that's another. I don't know. Yeah, we need to get more of Seaburn's work. I mean, her words out there, and Ruth Lanius, and Bessel, and Ed Hamlin, yeah. I agree. It is, I think, the, the hard, one of the hardest parts, knowing you have this amazing tool to help people, uh, is the cost. Because we have a very similar problem here, is that um, the neurofeedback equipment is so is you know understandably costly. The training is costly, so most neurofeedback providers are outside of our insurance system um, because we can't really even function inside the system because they don't they don't accept the codes that are for the billing for it. They they say they say it's not accepted. They just it's an exclusion, um, and so it the. You know, it's hard to say we have this and you can't access it. Mm. And, you know, we try to work with people as best we can. Mm. Can you come during the day? We'll give you a reduced rate, whatever we can do um, to try to help people access it. But it's, I think that's the, one of our biggest challenges facing the neurofeedback community. First of all, is getting the word out to more clinicians. Like you were saying, Anna. But then it's figuring out how do we get broader acceptance in the medical psychotherapy field to to get it affordable, to get it more covered. Yeah, I I I understand you have a different system, or you yes. may not have. In our practice, they were more than I are. We the patient paid by themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, but in the other place where I'm at um, then we just say neurofeedback as an adjunctive is that the word yeah to uh, psychotherapy I mean and I tell the therapist that you start with neurofeedback in the session 
So it's not neurofeedback, uh, you know, as one thing. I don't know. Can't you do that? You have someone for therapy and you just give them neurofeedback. Or do you, yeah. do you charge them differently? So the way that our system works here in the U.S. is billing codes are by time. So what you would have to do is take a lower fee and do less time or use time and charge more of a fee and then you could provide the neurofeedback separately and either charge them a separate fee or not charge them for it. Um, I don't work within our insurance system because that they pay so poorly to begin with. Um, if you're taking in-network insurance, you're maybe total making 60 to $100 a session um which here in the northeast is is poverty work you you can't make a decent living unless you're doing more than eight sessions a day uh, yeah. yeah which is which is a recipe for burnout yes yes um so for most neurofeedback providers you work as what we call an out of network provider and so we'll give our clients um, super bills bills they can send to the insurance if they have that ability um, and they can get some reimbursement. Um, what is reimbursement? The insurance will give them some percentage of the amount they've paid back. Okay. Um, but those plans are less and less available. A lot of plans don't have that option in them anymore. Um, so a lot of people, like you said, they just pay out of pocket. Yeah. They're just paying themselves for the treatment. Um, and, and it's costly. Um, you know, when you're talking about 40, 60, 80 sessions. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it it ends up being a treatment only for the wealthy. And yeah. we don't yeah. want to ex is exist only there. Yeah, yeah. But we have recognized, as I guess it is in your country too, that uh, more severely, what do you say, disabled people, I mean, psychiatric mm -hmm. people are, uh, they're asking us as mom yeah. said, um, because the hospitals can't take them anymore. It's, I mean, people are, so, well, I have like two or three hours where I reduce the fee to half or less. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, would you all mind describing how for, I'm just thinking of somebody who is listening and who doesn't actually know what does it mean to go to a therapy session that includes neurofeedback? How would you describe it to, to a new client? How would you describe what they can expect? Is there both, uh, the therapy session and some neurofeedback? What, what could I expect as somebody who's coming in for, for, for a session? I would say that, um, if I met a patient that will we agree that um, the the level of arousal is too high uh, and uh, the process would not benefit just keep on talking so that you uh, can uh, uh, have some help from your system. Your brain can have some help from knowing the arousal level and, uh, and that that type of training is uh, is something that the patient over time will 
will notice as a reduction of the, the symptoms that the patient can describe is, is bothering that person. Uh, and we know, I mean, when we, when we start, when we do an assessment, we know a lot about the, the symptoms, the problems that the patient has. Uh, so it's not so hard just to point them out and, and say to the patient that, or suggest that this could be re reduced over time. You can perhaps sleep better or you can have less uh, nightmares or whatever is the issue. So this is something that you, you can do in a way that just doesn't have to be so technical or, or frightening or whatever. You just another way of, of keeping going in the process. Uh, and, uh, um, and, and as I noticed, um, uh, uh, when I worked at the hospital, you could reduce the time the patient has to come. If I used to give them three to five years once a week, <laughs> perhaps they they even if a third of that time would would you know, less you could spend less. So this is something that uh, my boss thought was very useful when she wanted to to introduce this to other of my colleagues. So they could love this method. That was the time that the patient and, uh, and the therapist uh, should could use in a more sufficient way, and and you can uh, you can meet more patients, uh, and so on. I like to to tell clients that a, a typical session looks like usually we check in in the beginning, like we always do, how are you doing? How's the week going? Um, we might talk about something more in depth that's going on. Um, and then I'll always check about how the neurofeedback's been feeling. Have they noticed any shifts? And then the actual session is I put a couple of sensors on your head and, and an ear clip or two. It's painless. It's just some sticky stuff that goes on your head. When we take it off, there's nothing left on you. You come out as clean as you came in, maybe a little cleaner if I'm doing a good job. Uh, and then what you do is you play a game on a screen using your brain as the remote control device. Um, and so instead of going, doo -doo 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 -doo, you know, with your uh, controller, you're going to calm your brain. And I always tell them calm is a general statement. We'll get more into what that really looks like, but you're going to calm your brain and that's going to make the little Pac-Man move or the boat move, whatever game we're playing, that's going to make the game work. And because of that, your brain is going to go, Ooh, this is a good thing. And it's going to do more of that calming and the game will work better. You'll do more calming game will work better. And this feedback teaches your brain to change. And then that change sticks with you when you leave my room. It's not something you have to sit there and go, um, I'm calling up the neurofeedback training. It, it just stays. Um, now, in the beginning, it only stays for a day or two. And then over time, just like exercises, we repeat it, it sticks longer and longer until you can actually just stop training altogether and go live your life. Um, I do always tell people there's a good chance that life may get stressful again, unfortunately. I wish it never did, but often it does. Um, and then you can always come back for some 
you know, kind of booster sessions. Um, and then, so after in the actual session, once you've finished doing your anywhere from six minutes to 12 or 15 minutes, we don't typically do more work in the brain than that. Um, it tends to be too tiring. Um, we take the sensors off, clean you up, and off you go. Um, and all of that takes 45 to 55 minutes, depending on what we've got going on. And it's pretty, pretty easy. Um, and with my teenagers, I tell them it's kind of nice because you can get a lot of change in the brain without having to shed a lot of tears. Um, and that's, it's a nicer process to go through than really digging into the hard work without working on the brain. So I don't know what, what Anna or Mon how you describe it, but that's kind of yeah. what I'm through. I, I, um, yeah, I can hear you have a lot of teenagers. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's a good description. Both yeah. I tell them almost the same, um, but uh, I do the training before we start talking. Mm. And I tell them that, that first we train and then we talk. And, um, and sometimes it can be that um, the talk will be about the symptoms that we had tracked mm. in the beginning. And like for some people, they, you know, you train and talk about the symptoms and takes maybe 20 sessions before we start the therapy. That's so, it depends on the patient. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's like, yeah, I don't say they have games because um, maybe I should do that. I don't know. Well, I have most, you know, when they, they, so they, yeah, but I, I, um, it's a fun thing when something new is happening on the, now I have the Lotus Pond, I, they <laughs> love, uh, when something is changing and they say, wow, this happened. Yeah. Your brain did that. Then they get what is neurofeedback that they can. You know, and I say, you can stop focus and you will see everything will change. So that's, I take it more while training and then let it happen. Yeah. 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 But that's I, the Pac-Man is good. Yeah. I have yeah. some young yeah. up. Um, yeah. And that's a good way to tell them, as you said. They get the video game idea and then, yeah. yeah. They don't yeah. fully understand what it means that your brain will control it, but we always get to that part. Yeah. It's much easier when they're attached to the sensors to talk about, okay, now clench your teeth and you're going to see this go up. Yeah. Um, and then, okay, now I want you to focus, but relax. And then beep, 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 beep. Oh, now my brain's controlling it the way I want it to. And also if you want, like I have today, um, I got this text message from a therapist that said that I've talked about a lot, <laughs> too, a lot, uh, about neurofeedback and he's now uh, scary. Um, and because he has, a, I'm, uh, we talked about a patient he has, and I said, neurofeedback, it's just neurofeedback. You have to lower the arousal and nothing else is, I can't discuss anything else. <laughs> to me, it is that. Uh, and today I got the text from him. Can my patient come and, and test this, you know, just try it and, and see what you're using and how it looks like and all that. And I, yay, of course, come. 
So, but we don't test, what do you say? You don't just try neurofeedback, but the patients also need, anyway, the traumatized patients need to see this. It's scary to someone else. You know, they, I don't know, we can have a theme about that, about skin. And um, because touch is, it's more, the head is one of the skin area that is very sensitive on our body. The hands are not, you know, we shake hands all the time, but the head is, it's more sensitive. So, uh, you know, if you have a, I have a patient that is, she's doing like this when I'm coming with a sensor, it's like, okay, please stop now. Uh, and things like that. It's, it's not easy with, it's not just putting the sensors on sometimes. It's a lot of talk before. Yeah. I'm taking some notes as um, you guys are talking about sort of a rough outline, of, you know, yeah. weeks and, and themes. Um, and I like the idea down the line of one about touch. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and the client experience of neurofeedback. I mean, I'm sure we'll weave it in, but to be really focused on what, what is our client experience? What makes things better or harder for them? You know, all that stuff. And sometimes they don't, sometimes they don't uh, notice themselves. The family does more some other, and that is very important. Not just to check the symptoms, the degree of symptoms and reducing or something. It's, it's what other people can notice uh, and so on. I think that is so important. And for them, for, for the, the grown-ups that I meet, for them to understand that something has changed. They have changed. And, uh, and um, perhaps we are the last person ourselves to notice that, but not that do it before we do. So this is, I think, is very important. Um, uh, and uh, so uh, I usually ask, the patient, if if someone has said something about how how they act now, uh, or something has happened to them, and so on, and um, uh, and then they can uh, remember that someone has said something, or they themselves has has done something that is usually don't do. And that is not just depressed people. I mean, it's everyone. <laughs> I agree. It is getting the feedback you need to figure out, is it working? What do I need to change? That's one of the biggest challenges. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes that's why we want to default to doing something more, quote, scientific, where we don't have to listen for all of that. We can just, oh, the computer says do this, we do this. Mm -hmm. And and I think our human brains like the, the ease of that and the concrete, uh, almost feels like it's 100% knowable, but the, the true art of the science is listening for that, that feedback mm -hmm. and helping them discover the feedback. Yeah, that's true. That's an interesting question for me. I, I know that, uh, Dr. Amlin often says that, um, if you're uncomfortable with ambiguity, neurofeedback is it may not be the the way for you to to do your work. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder, <laughs> excuse me, 
how did, <laughs> gosh, um, this process of becoming comfortable with the ambiguity and really listening for, for the kinds of um, information that you need to change protocols or treatment or discuss it later on in session, how was that process for you all? Um, is this something that felt very natural or did it, was there some part of the not, not really, un, you know, it being ambiguous and really needing some exploration and tentative steps, you know, Seaburn often talks about how the process is about asking better questions. Um, that's what the whole, the whole goal is. I wonder how that process has been for you all. Yeah, it, um, you know, it's um, if you if you are on the wrong frequency or protocol, it sometimes feels like oh, I give up. You know, it's like ten sessions with nothing is because you don't get any effect or bad effects and stuff like that. Then I've learned. I mean, I've been uh, with Sabrin's mentoring. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was the first thing we did uh, when I was finished my course. I, we contacted Seaburn for uh, supervision. And then she told about this mentoring at Eager. Eager learned. Um, and she usually says, go back to the original protocol and start all over. And that's, and that's the best, you know, you, if they need calming or st stabilizing. And then you start there and see what happens. Uh, yeah, and, and questions. Yeah, and that's the thera therapeutic work too. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. I don't know if you, you two have other experiences with that. Questioning. I think you have to ask the question again, Lars, because I thought of something as something. Uh, what what was it that you wanted? Ambiguity. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. curious if the process of getting comfortable with, yeah, yeah, you know, the the brain is so complicated, and the way it expresses itself in behavioral in people's yeah. lives, right? Yeah. Um, exactly. How <laughs> how has that learning process been for you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm so old and I, I had experience from psychoanalytic work, uh, during many years and the, 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 uh, that was not, I would said what was right, so to speak. Someone else told me what, what I was processing, but when it comes to neurofeedback, feedback, it's the patient who says something about how how they, uh, what they notice, how they feel, uh, the symptoms, and so on. I, even if many of pa patients think that I know what's best or what's ne the next step is or whatever, I'm just someone who is trying to understand what a patient says and try to figure out the next step. But we are talking constantly about the patient and the patients. Uh, experience uh, and so on. So I, uh, so the patient is as much an expert in the room as I am, and that I think is the most important thing. It's so, something different from uh, um, 
people who who um, give psychotherapeutic um what do you say uh, tell others expertise advice thanks yeah. Yeah. yeah so so this is that changed Lars when when you understand when you understand that that you just you just have to listen more carefully to the patient uh, even more careful so that you can do uh, that you that there's a response uh, is something that I can um, apply to and and uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and also when you speak now more than I, I think that um, what has come more into the room is the body. You of know, you ask about symptoms, it's usually bodily symptoms. It's not just yes. cognitive or emotional, it's also bodily symptoms. That's a different. Mm. Uh, Where do you feel it? What? what? Yeah. And it's a lot more to listen into then yeah how they acted at home it's not just that <laughs> or yeah Lars I'm I'm going back to your original question about managing the ambiguity and I think a little bit unlike Anna and, and Maud I started narrow feedback well only maybe five years into my therapy career I mean, mm-hmm. still relatively very new to therapy um, and so I feel like I, rather than tolerating a new ambiguity, I think I was already in it, but feeling like, uh, I was missing a piece to the puzzle when I learned about therapy and did therapy, it, it very quickly became apparent to me that we were trying to teach the body and the mind and we're ignoring the brain. And I think therapy on a whole sort of the way we're taught ignores the brain piece of all of the body and the mind. And being a sciencey person, um, I immediately recognized that to me, it felt like I was trying to talk to the, to the wrong end of the stick um, and, and sort of existing in this place of just not sure that, that it was very effective. Um, and that, um, so moving to add neurofeedback actually felt like so much more clarity than the world I had already existed in. Um, therapy for me, it didn't have a lot of clarity. It felt very muddled because it felt like the prescription had the, had the wrong, uh, antecedent. Um, and so when I added neurofeedback, I finally felt like I was addressing the different components that make up what we our symptoms, what we struggle with, that I was finally getting to address the the root, which was the brain's activity, and then the mind and the body, um, that they all got to be present in the room. Um, so in a weird way, it took out some ambiguity and then added in a lifetime of learning because the brain is immensely complex. And I, yeah. I won't quote Ed properly, but I love when he says, if we were to fully understand our brain, that our brain would be too complex for us to fully understand it. Yeah. So I think my experience was slightly different in coming in so early. Yes. You're lucky. Really? Yes. I feel very lucky. 
Yeah. And um, that's something I also told Maud the other day that I'm so surprised that this hasn't been more, you know, worldwide. It's yeah. almost that we, I, I feel lucky that I came in in the right time when it's evolving and with Bruce. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Seaburn. Um, so it's a good time to be here, really, right now.